Well, hello, church family. We are in our series, Lessons from the Early Church. We've been looking at stories from the book of Acts and trying to kind of just go through them and look for the lessons that those stories might have for us today. And today we have a story that comes late in the book of Acts. It's a, it's a really crazy story, bizarre to us, almost like something that seems like it belongs in a horror movie or something like that. And it takes place in a city called Ephesus. And in order for us to, to really kind of fully understand all the different layers and nuances of what's going on in the story, requires us to know a little bit about that city and the type of people who were there at this time. So the city of Ephesus was incredibly important both to the ancient world and to the Bible. Paul spent a lot of time there. He's been ministering there for three months already at this point. Later on, he would write a significant letter that ends up in our New Testament, the letter to the Ephesian church. And um, also in the ancient world, incredibly significant city. One of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, top probably three or four, just in terms of size alone. And it's one of those cities that, like most significant cities, it's situated on multiple roads, it has a big port, so there's a lot of trade, made it very economically prosperous and significant to the region. But it wasn't just economically significant and economically prosperous. It was also a profoundly spiritual city. The kind of prominent feature of the city, if you were to visit it in the ancient world, would be the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans called her. And Artemis was this very well-known, very broadly worshipped goddess of the ancient Greco-Roman world, and her temple was something to behold. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Picture those kind of giant colonnaded areas just like the Parthenon in Athens, except much, much larger than the Parthenon. In fact, this was probably the largest structure that existed at the time. Over 156 foot tall pillars and just absolutely awe-inspiring as a spectacle. And so the religious life in a city like Ephesus was hugely important. You not only had Artemis worship at kind of the center of it, but Artemis herself was a goddess of fertility and a goddess of magic and astrology. And so magicians and astrologers and soothsayers and witches and spiritual practitioners of all kinds, all kinds of different occult people would flock to the city. It was kind of a religious hub of pagan spirituality. And so you had books of magic, magic spells being bought and sold, as well as magical items, things like amulets, shrines, and idols that would afford all kinds of different spiritual benefits to people. Magic words were a big trade in Ephesus. Um, there were many, but famous even to this day, are the Ephesia Grammata, the Ephesian words, which were this series of Greek words, Greek nonsense words, actually, that when spoken correctly could confer some kind of spiritual benefit on the person saying them. What's interesting about those words, as well as many other magic words from this time, was that it didn't really matter what they meant. In fact, most people today think that the Ephesia Grammata were meaningless. The point was, could you pronounce them correctly? So if you knew the words and you knew how and when to say them, they were considered to be greatly powerful in the spiritual world. So you have to picture Ephesus as this bustling metropolis that's also this pagan religious hub of magical and spiritual activity, magic words, magic items, and everything else you could imagine along those lines. And here's the thing. At this point, whether you like it or not, whether you want to feel this way or not, all of that stuff I just described, magic words, magic items, witches and necromancers and magicians, all of it sounds like mystical, magical nonsense to most of us. To most of us, the knee-jerk reaction is this is just like magical mumbo-jumbo that doesn't really mean anything and doesn't actually impact the real world in any way. This is just the kind of crazy beliefs of ancient peoples. 
And stuff like that really just belongs in the ancient world when people didn't know better or in like fantasy books and fantasy movies and horror stories and things like that. But it's not something that actually impacts our everyday life. And here's the thing. You might even believe a religion like Christianity that, that affirms the significance and existence of the spirit world. But just by virtue of the fact that you are born and raised in this part of the world at this time in history means that your kind of natural, basic intuition towards anything metaphysical, anything spiritual, is negative. Your natural gut reaction for most of us is going to be to kind of discount and discredit this stuff and categorize it in our minds as fantasy, something that's not real. Now, that's a significant problem for us to face. Because not only is that not the normal view for most of human history, or even for most of the world today, it's not the view of the world that's described in the Bible. The Bible, over and over again, if you just read it and absorb the picture of reality that it portrays, it shows us a very significant and real spiritual reality populated by spiritual beings. And this spiritual reality has a real impact on the world that we live in. And so we have to reckon with the fact that for us, that's not intuitive. It's hard for us. And we also have to acknowledge the fact that, man, the last 200 years in this part of the world, we are the weird ones. Most of human beings from most of human history and most of the world today acknowledges and respects the spirit world. Now, I said most of us, and I said that on purpose, because even though our kind of gut level predisposition is to be a materialist, meaning not meaning, you know, that we like to have nice things, although we have that problem too. But I mean materialist in the sense of believing that the material universe is all that there is. Most of us have that predisposition. But there are some of us who, based on our religious upbringing, either in a different religion or a cult, or even, um, you know, a, a tradition within Christianity that involves emphasizing spiritual warfare at kind of the highest level, depending on your upbringing, you might have the opposite problem. You might have been taught to be so focused on the spiritual world and the expectation of spiritual beings and spiritual activity that you kind of see it behind absolutely everything in your life and in the world around you. Now, C.S. Lewis saw this kind of dichotomy and this problem of polarization in the world as far as our view of whether or not spiritual realities are real or significant. And he, as usual, described it really beautifully in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters. And he says this, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So the point Lewis is making is that most human beings are not going to be balanced and have a healthy middle ground of this. We're either going to be that materialist who believes that at a gut level, the only things that are real are the things that can be seen and felt and measured, or we're going to be what he calls the magician, the person who expects spiritual realities to be behind everything, to be responsible for everything, and we end up jumping at shadows and suspecting demonic activity at every turn. And he says either of those, obsession or ignorance, are something that the evil forces in the spiritual world are equally pleased by. And so the reason I'm talking about all of this up front is because this story is profoundly involved with the spiritual world. And I want us to start with an acknowledgement of where we might be on that spectrum of materialist to magician, and then do our best to set that aside. 
to let the text inform us about the realities of the spiritual world rather than bringing all of our kind of metaphysical presuppositions to the text and assuming that it's going to have to match that. So do your best at the outset here to set those things aside, and we'll jump in. This is from Acts 19, starting at verse 11. This is Paul in Ephesus. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now this, right on the surface, hits us really strange. So Paul is there in Ephesus. He's teaching in the synagogues as he normally does. He's also working as a tent maker in the marketplace and talking to people there. And here Luke tells us that some of the kind of tools and things that Paul is working with, handkerchiefs that he would have wiped his face with, aprons that he would have used probably in his tent making trade, they're so imbued with supernatural power that they're carried away. And even when Paul's not present, miracles are being done through them. Now, Really strange practices, even in the modern church, have evolved as a result of some passages like this. In fact, even to this day, if you're watching TV late at night, you might see a televangelist trying to sell holy water that he's blessed or holy handkerchiefs that have been blessed. And if you pay a little bit of money, he'll send it to you and you can get a blessing from that. And here's the problem. First of all, anytime you see a spiritual practice or a doctrine emphasized at a really high level, by a preacher or a religious tradition, and it comes from strange kind of isolated verses like this one, and especially verses like this one that are in a narrative where it's not telling you to do this kind of thing or to expect this kind of thing, watch out. Those kinds of doctrines and practices that are based on really thin biblical precedent are usually dangerous, or at least often dangerous. And not only that, the purpose of miracles in the book of Acts is very clear. Over and over again, and we'll see this in this story, miracles and supernatural spiritual activity done through the apostles is about validating the gospel message so that the gospel is received. Paul isn't going around putting together shows for people to come see him work miracles. Paul goes, as we've seen over and over again, to the synagogue to reason from the scriptures for the gospel so that they'll understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes to the marketplace to talk about the gospel to common people. And when miracles are done, they're not done for their own sake or for people to say, wow, this is so amazing. They're done to validate the gospel message and to make people receptive to it. Now, furthermore, and this is the most important thing, there are really strong things in the text that let us know that what we see here with these kind of spiritual, supernatural objects that are coming from Paul, that this is not an ordinary, everyday thing that we should be expecting as Christians. The first thing is that it says, God was doing. Look again at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Luke wants to make it very clear that those items, those magical items, they're third in line in terms of who is doing the activity. It says God's the one doing the activity. He's doing it through Paul. And then only after those two assignments of, of activity does it say that there are these handkerchiefs and aprons. This is God's work. God is imbuing these items with this supernatural power so that the gospel message will receive that credibility and validation. Furthermore, and this is really significant, it even says in the text that what's happening here is extraordinary. ESV translates it extraordinary. It's actually even more dramatic in Greek. It just says not ordinary, not normal. It says God was doing not normal miracles by the hand of Paul. So what God is doing here is real. It's true. It happened, but it is exceptional. 
and Luke describes it that way. And so this kind of exceptional, extraordinary spiritual activity is noticed by the people of Ephesus, who were, as we've talked about already, interested in this kind of stuff, and they start trying to imitate what they see. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, this is weird because if you're not familiar with the ancient world, you go, wow, I just learned about a whole category of person I'd never considered before, itinerant Jewish exorcists. And we actually have examples in other historical writings that this type of person absolutely did exist. People who were professional exorcists, who, and many of them came from the Jewish world, who had their rituals and their incantations and their processes all around driving out evil spirits from people. And it's interesting because they're described as seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. Now, this isn't, almost certainly isn't, um, sons of one of the true high priests who held the high priestly position in Jerusalem because we have historical records of those characters and this name doesn't match any of them. What's most likely here is that Sceva, the father of these seven exorcists, was a priest who was in that kind of high priestly circle of influence. And that would have benefited the, his sons who are here trying to start their exorcism business because it lended that kind of hierarchical spiritual power to their name. We are sons of a high priest. And whoever he is, whoever they are, they have wandered far from their ancestral faith. I mean, they're far away from home geographically in Ephesus and spiritually. They have clearly just bought fully into the magical pagan world of Ephesus. And they're probably making their living together, going around and trying to drive evil spirits out of people. And look at the incantation that they use. They've heard about what happened with Paul and some of the miracles that are going on and probably how he has driven out evil spirits and even these objects associated with him have driven out evil spirits. And so they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, magic words and incantations in the ancient world often involved names of power. If you could know the names, sometimes the secret names of deities and spiritual beings, and you could invoke them, you could access their power in some way. And so they're confronting this man who's being oppressed by an evil spirit, and to that spirit, they use the name of Jesus and the name of Paul. Here's a question for you. Is there power in the name of Jesus? If you're a Christian, my hope is that your answer to that question would be yes. Of course, there's power in the name of Jesus. But then you have to ask the second question. What does that mean? In what sense is there power in the name of Jesus? We pray in the name of Jesus. What do we mean by that? Where is that power located? How do human beings access it? And then ask yourself the really direct question, which is, according to your understanding of the name of Jesus and the power associated with the name of Jesus, should what these seven men are doing work? According to your understanding, should this work? Should the mere speaking of the name of Jesus drive out this evil spirit? Let's see. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now this is a terrifying moment in scripture, and you have to just take that in. The evil spirit within that man recognizes the powerful link between Paul and Jesus, 
but he sees no such link between these seven exorcists and Paul or Jesus. And so he says, I know of Jesus and I know of Paul, but I've never heard of you guys before. And the name of Jesus on their lips has no effect. And then as if that wasn't enough, it says that this one man possessed by this evil spirit beats all seven of them into submission and they run away terrified and naked. It's like a backwards exorcism. Instead of the evil spirit being driven out of the man, the exorcists are driven away from his presence. And this is where you as a modern materialist, again, at your core, like I said, you might sign on the dotted line and say you believe in the spirit world, but most of us by default don't believe in it. You have to stop and acknowledge this story. This is real. There's an evil spirit confronted by seven professional exorcists who use the name of Jesus and it has no effect. See, there's beliefs that kind of move around in different Christian circles. I grew up at different points believing some version of this, that, that the power that's in the name of Jesus is just there in the name itself. And there are points in my life as a Christian when I would have thought that all you had to do is exactly what these seven guys did, that demons can't stand to be in any place where the name of Jesus is spoken. And this story shows that is simply not true. What would you have done in their position? The name of Jesus on their lips is not enough to subdue this evil spirit. And this is the key. The power of the name of Jesus is not in the pronunciation of sounds with your mouth. It's not mouth noises that make the name of Jesus powerful. That's magic. That's pagan. And so confront that belief in you. If that's something that you've thought at some point in your life that, that man, it's, it's about speaking the name of Jesus, recognize that's magic. That's treating the name of Jesus like a magic spell, which is what these men try to do. And they receive a horrible consequence for having done that. The power that is in the name of Jesus has to do with the identity and authority of Jesus. And this is the way the word name is used all the time, both in the ancient world and in the modern world. The idea of someone's name has to do with their reputation, their authority, who they actually are. So when Paul in his letter says, I'm willing to suffer and even to die for the sake of the name of Jesus, he's not talking about syllables pronounced or written down. He's talking about who Jesus is the reputation of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And so the power that is active in the name of Jesus has to do with who Jesus is, the power and authority of Jesus, and especially when called upon by those who have genuinely placed their faith in him. The spiritual security of the Christian when faced with the spirit world comes from the position they occupy on the basis of of Jesus' authority. It's about the fact that you have been saved and brought into the fold of God by the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, and the fact that you now occupy a place beneath the shelter of his wings. It's not about knowing the right words to say, because again, that sounds an awful lot like the magical words that were bought and sold in places like Ephesus. And so what Paul knew that the seven sons of Sceva did not know is that his confidence was rooted in the victory of Jesus over supernatural powers, not in the fact that he knew a word. That's why Paul, in a letter like Colossians, can say, he, speaking of Jesus, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. One of the primary things accomplished by Jesus at the cross 
was victory, triumph over supernatural powers and principalities. When Paul says rulers and authorities, this is who he's referring to, supernatural powers. And Paul says at the cross, he triumphed over them and subjected them to open shame. Now look at what he wrote directly to the church at Ephesus, the church that was located in the same city where this event happened. He tells them in speaking of the resurrection, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the workings of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So this is beautiful because it brings us all the way back to the subject of our very first sermon in this series. If you were here, you remember we started with Acts chapter 1, where Jesus rises from the dead, commissions his disciples to be witnesses of his to the ends of the earth, and then he ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And here in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul says, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Jesus, in the ascension, occupies an eternal position of victory and authority over spiritual powers. And so Paul writes this to a church in Ephesus with the temple of Artemis looming over them and says, don't worry, brothers and sisters, your king sits far above every rule and power and authority. And that is the key to understanding this story and how we should relate to it. Understand that your safety and security, your source of comfort when it comes to supernatural powers isn't rooted in knowing a word, isn't rooted in denying the existence of these things. It's in knowing your place within the kingdom of the victorious one who sits in a position of authority above all supernatural powers. We have to arrive at a place where we can acknowledge against our intuition that the spiritual world is real and that it's significant, and that it actually has an impact on the lives we live, but also recognize at the same time that we don't live in fear of it. We don't jump at shadows. We don't have to be obsessed with it, because we have taken shelter under the wings of the one who sits in authority far above all of those powers. Now let's look at how the story ends and the kind of result of all of this supernatural activity. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is beautiful because you see that all of this incredible, supernatural, powerful activity doesn't result in an increase in their obsession with magic and the supernatural. It's the very opposite. It says the result of the sons of Sceva's humiliation was that the Lord Jesus was extolled. And then people who formerly had been practicing magic bring their magical items together to be destroyed. And by the way, as a side note, it's not 100% clear from the text, but most estimates say that when it says 50,000 pieces of silver, we're talking about a bigger pile of books than you're probably picturing. Um, if it's a standard measured piece of silver, then chances are we're talking about something that in modern money 
would be a pile of books and objects worth four, five, six million dollars. This is a massive city-changing event that happens. And it's the result of God's work in and through Paul. And it says, The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so once again, the purpose of these miraculous actions is about the word of the Lord going forth. It's about the gospel continuing to advance. It's about that commission that Jesus gave back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, going forward and becoming fulfilled, that the gospel is going to extend out into all nations. This is what God is up to. He's continuing that work of triumphing over his enemies and sending the gospel out to all the nations of the world. And in fact, the story that comes immediately after this one, I wish we had time to look at it in detail, but the story that comes immediately after this one is an incredible example of how that actually begins to impact the real world. Right after this story, because of this, this massive demonstration where they're destroying magical objects, a riot starts. It started by silversmiths, specifically one silversmith named Demetrius, who realizes that, man, his trade in making idols and shrines for Artemis is suffering because people are rejecting pagan magic and turning to the gospel. And so he starts a riot among the silversmiths saying, they're trying to threaten to take down Artemis and people are no longer buying Artemis statues and the worship of Artemis is falling apart. And so we need to rally together and resist this. And so they start a massive riot. And when the town clerk of Ephesus comes to calm everyone down, listen to what he says in chapter 19, verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now here's why this is significant. This is 2,000 years ago. And the town clerk doesn't say, hey, listen, stop rioting. There's plenty of room for all different religious groups here. Leave them alone. No, what he says to calm them down is, listen, you guys, Artemis worship isn't going anywhere. The whole world knows about Artemis. They know about the miraculous objects we have here. They know about this great temple. Artemis worship is not under any threat by this gospel movement, by this upstart new religious movement. Don't worry about them. Artemis is just fine. Let me ask you, when's the last time you got invited to a church of Artemis? When's the last time you drove past a church of Artemis in the city you live in? It doesn't happen. Because despite the town clerk's confidence 2,000 years later, people no longer worship Artemis. But people the world over continue to worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so you see this ongoing victory over the supernatural powers and principalities even happening here in these stories and on into the present. And so as you live your life, do your best to become consciously aware of the fact that there are supernatural realities underlying the everyday things that you see in the world, but not in a way that takes you to a place of fear, but to a place of, of confidence and trust that you are under the shelter of the God who sits in authority and dominance and victory over them forever. Let's pray. Lord, when I read this story, I confess that it's even in, in my own gut, there's a, a reaction just to think of this as, as fantasy, as an ancient story. 
And Lord, it's difficult for me to even acknowledge the truth of it at my core. And so I pray that you would help all of us to recognize that this is actually the way the world works, that there are supernatural powers involved, Lord, that there is this ongoing struggle. And yet we have given our allegiance and our trust to the victorious one, to the king who sits enthroned above them all. And so I pray that we would become more aware of that reality and that we would gain confidence from it and gain trust knowing that we are on the team of the winning, victorious, eternal king. We love you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.